welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. They literally do their hands like this. And they say, tell me about the Trinity. And then you have to give the answer. You have to talk about the Trinity and then... You know, all these questions that you ask you, and, and you know, it makes sense. You have to be prepared and, and give the right answer. But when we go through different uh, job interviews, I've certainly been asked a lot of these common questions, um, things like, why are you interested in this position, right? And of course, you're thinking, I'm interested, I want you to give me money. And then I can be in your position, right? You can't say that. But then they'll say, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, right? That's always awkward. Like, well, uh, my Pisces, like walking on the beach, I don't know. Uh, this is always great. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see your... And I always think five years, I don't have a five-year plan. I don't have a five-minute plan. Five years, uh, five years. Uh, hopefully alive, uh, clothed, and gainfully employed here, right? Um, now, one of the most commonly asked interview questions is, what is your greatest weakness? What's your greatest weakness? And then, I've done this in interviews, you, you spin it to make it sound like a strength. You say, well, my greatest weakness, some people tell me, is that I work too hard, right? <laughs> Maybe I'm a little bit too humble sometimes. That's what some people say. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit too perfect, so be aware of that. It's a weakness. So you spin the weakness to sound like a strength. But in reality, what if actually the reality is true that um, sometimes our strengths can actually be a weakness? The things that we put so much stock and energy, all the things that we consider gains, can actually be a weakness. These areas of our lives, that some of them are even good things. But we can trust more in those things than in, in Jesus and who, who he is. Like, like, let's say, for example, we hold in this hand all of our accomplishments, all of our gains, all of our pedigree, all of our spiritual resume, our professional resume. We hold all these things in one hand. And then in the other hand, you, you hold Jesus in, in the light and the splendor and the eternity and the, and the power of who he is. And in the, in the light of who he is, we hold up our, our accomplishments to in light of eternal splendor and then maybe you hold those things and you see that maybe some of this has been a little bit of vanity. Maybe some of this has been in light of eternity, just a lot of temporary earthly pursuit that in light of who he is, is just so misguided and below that, below, it's not like to put those things down, but it's just a comparison. It's almost no comparison, but those strengths that we put so much stock in, they can become a weakness. Like, what if you had an encounter with Jesus that was so powerful that in an instant you said, I've got a detox. I, I'm instantly detoxed of myself. And this is what we're going to encounter today, what Paul says in Philippians, that the traits that were his strengths, the things that gave him his identity, the very things that he counted as gains, the prominence he had as a Pharisee, all this stuff, they were actually an obstacle for him hearing the gospel. A man who spoke for God did not even know God. 
And they were all, he was blinded by all of those things. All of those things that he considered in, uh, accomplishments were actually based on pride. That he had been boasting about all the wrong things. The story of Paul is really incredible because to me it's like the greatest nightmare uh, that a human being could have, which is this. That you realize that your whole life up to that point has been a waste. It's scary stuff. And that's what Paul realizes. Was like He was so justified in holding on to all these gains and strengths and being proud in these things. But in reality, he had been wasting his time. He had been validating himself based on what he had done. Not on who Jesus is. And it's hard though. Because it's how we're wired as human beings. You know, we do take our identity and what we do. And God wants us to have jobs and to provide for our families, of course. But we do, if we're not careful, we can start to boast in those things and put more trust in those things than we ought to. But people of all faith backgrounds, they do this. You can easily slide in that place of beginning to feel pretty, pretty awesome about yourself. And you start trusting more in that than in Jesus is. And even atheists I've talked to or atheists I've read online, they all have the same kind of line that they say. Which is, as long as I'm a good person and I don't hurt anyone, I'm fine. My hope is in the life that I live. You hear that a lot. But the great irony here is though that they're trusting in their own righteousness. You see that? You're trusting in the fact that you think that you're better than God. And that's what Paul is doing here too. He's trusting in his own strength and righteousness. And if we're not careful, we slide into that place. And we think that we're smarter than God is. So Paul sees here that trusting in your strengths is a weakness. But in trusting your weaknesses to God is a strength. And this, is, this was my story, a lot of people's story. For much of, you know, until I, Jesus found me, I was trusting in my strengths all the time, in my own goodness. When in reality, all I can really bring to God is my weaknesses and my brokenness. And that's what he really wants. Why? Because he loves us. That's the ultimate answer that I hope you hear today, is that he loves you. He loves you and your coworkers. He can't stand. He loves your aunt and your uncle. He loves everyone. And he wants us to get this truth, to not trust in our gains and our strengths, but to trust more in who he is. So in the book of Philippians, Paul is in prison. He's writing from prison. He, the church, the, this book is called Philippians because he's writing to a city called Philippi. And he's a, he's a religious leader. Paul's an apostle that Jesus chose to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews of the world. And he's writing to a church in Philippi that at this time most of them are a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Um, and there's a lot of tension there with what that meant and should, should the Gentiles come in? How do they join the church? Um, and so he would write these letters to kind of help teach and guide and, and give encouragement to these different places where the church was popping up. Before I read this, um, there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of argument today about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. And now I think it's getting down to LeBron and Michael, right? This is, this is, the, this is a debate of who's the greatest of all time, or the GOAT, G-O-A-T, who's the greatest of all time. I think Larry Bird should be in that conversation. Pistol Pete, you would say, needs to be in that conversation. Um, Kareem could be in that conversation. I mean, Tim, I mean, Tim Duncan? I don't know. Who's the Wake Forest guy? Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Is that what I'm saying? 
He's got a lot of rings. A lot of rings. Um, but yeah, you point at you point at the stats and the rings, and it was like, well, my guy had this many points per game, and 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 it's it's you're never going to find no one's going to be happy with whatever gets decided with that. If you look at verse four of this, Philippians three four, Paul is saying here, I am the spiritual and religious goat. He's saying, no one is more accomplished than I am in terms of being religious. Paul says this, verse 4, Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. He's saying, if any of you think you can boast about your religious deeds in the past, no, 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 me. I'm the best. I'm going to beat you in that game. Here's why. So I'm circumcised on the eighth day. That's when your babies, baby boy, Jewish boys get circumcised. That was me, eighth day. I'm a member of the people of Israel. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. My bloodline is pure. I'm a pure blood Jewish man. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the cream of the crop. I'm the top of the heap. There's no one better than me. I'm the goat. Uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. And he liked it while he watched Stephen die, getting stoned. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I followed everything in the Old Testament. I got it all right. And then he says, though, everything that I thought I gained. And he uses past tense in verse 7. Yet whatever gains I had... These I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. All the gains that he had that he thought were so important, he sees them all as loss. Paul had this experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, as the Bible tells us. And he sees Jesus in the sky in this vision that transforms his life. In an instant, he's detoxed of himself. In an instant, he encounters the risen Christ and everything about his past, he realizes, is just rags. What he thought was so holy and righteous was, in fact, worthless. That's how great Jesus is when we encounter him and we see him in that way. You see it in light of eternity, and it's like, really? I put so much time and energy into all these things that... Why? He says, whatever gains I have, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. And then he takes that a step further. He's saying, like, imagine you viewed your, the world through fuzzy black and white TV with blinders on. That was like, and then all of a sudden the blinders come off and you can see in like perfect 4K, 5K, 10K, whatever it is now, HD vision, panoramic. This is like what's happened to Paul. He's like, he's completely seeing things for the truth of what they are. He's seeing the reality of heaven and then what his life is supposed to be. And, and then in verse 8, he says, more than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, what did Paul lose? He lost his privilege. He was a social elite. He had probably had a lot of money. He lost his status. People essentially worship these guys. They would parade in the streets with their long flowing robes. And everyone knew they were holy men. And Jesus, though, called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. 
And Paul is now experiencing, he's realized this at this point. And he's saying this, everything I've lost, all that things that I've lost, it doesn't matter. And you would think that he would miss those things, but he doesn't. Look at the next verse. He refers to these things, and I regard them as rubbish. Now the word here, rubbish, could also mean garbage, refuse, or trash. The King James actually gets it closer. King James is not a good translation of the Bible. New King James is pretty good. King James, though, right here, they get it right. He uses the word dung. The Greek word there is skubala. I can't say what skubala really means, but you know the word. He's saying, I regard all those trophies, all the stuff, it's all skubala. Now, when I, before I had children, um, a coworker of mine at another church, she had a young three-year-old boy. And he would play on the floor while we worked at the church. And one day he gets up, he goes and stands in the corner and squats down. And she said, are you going to the bathroom in your pants? And I, she started crying. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to be me one day. I'm going to have to deal with this one day when we have children. And we did. I realized that dad life is, is dung life. <laughs> mom life, mom, mom life, dung life, right? It's just, it's everywhere. Thankfully, we're, that's behind us now. But if for a couple of years, whoo, they don't, they don't give you a manual for that. They don't tell you about that. Well, okay, here we go. But he's saying here, everything I regard, for this sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as scubala, in order that I may gain Christ. I'm not trying to be crass when I'm saying this, but I'm using the words that he's using. And he's saying, if you trust in your own righteousness and how good you've been and trying to earn something from God, it's never going to work. He's saying, you can't do that. I played that game. And it, it, you come up empty. You can't, you're essentially crowding God out. And if you do that, he's saying, just flush it down the toilet. Because it's not where you need to be. Verse 9. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Verse 9. If you want to know what Christianity essentially is, it is this. This is bedrock Christianity, what he is teaching right here. Which is, uh, we don't trust in our own righteousness. We trust in Jesus. That is for a free gift of salvation that he gives to us by his grace. We don't trust in our own ability. We realize we cannot reach heaven on our own. We can't know eternal life here on our own strength. I am not perfect. I trust in the one who is and Christians essentially realize trusting in my own strengths is actually a weakness. But entrusting my weaknesses to God is a strength. Because really, all we can bring to Jesus is our brokenness. And that is more than enough. And when we do that, you're in a, you're, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far. And as John Wesley would say, that is how you actually enter into what he called the house of salvation. A porch, a door frame, and a home. Now before I get into that, six months before John Wesley died, he wrote a letter to a preacher in 1790. 
And in that letter, Wesley said the reason why he believed God raised up the people called Methodist. That's a big deal. If the founder of your movement says this is why we exist, I think you should pay attention, right? This is the ultimate vision casting moment. And he, says, he said this, the grand depositum which God has lodged with the people called Methodist, and for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appeared to have raised us up. Let me put that in 21st century vernacular. This is why we exist, y'all. This is why we exist. This is why God raised up this one reason, he says, this one purpose of why God raised up the Methodists, and it is this, the doctrine of Christian perfection or entire sanctification. They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. That is the reason why he believed God blessed the Methodist movement was entire sanctification, Christian perfection. What does that mean? It means that it is God's work within our lives helping us grow in divine love and giving us the strength to remove the desire to sin. That is what it means. Sanctification means that the Holy Spirit comes within us and makes us holy. It can be a gradual process. It's our whole lifelong process. But it also can be an instantaneous process, like with Paul. But it is, it is the process, though, of growing holier and more and more like Jesus. This is the reason God raised up the Methodists. Now, in the United States, the Methodist Church has gotten away from this in many places. But this is the reason why God initially blessed the movement, and we have got to return to that. So he would say that, that the house of salvation is a great metaphor for this understanding. That the porch is representative of the prevenient grace of God. This is the love and the grace of God that loves you before you even knew how much you needed God's love. It's the love of God that awakens you to your need to know God. It's the love of God that pursues you in your waywardness, right? And, and I, need, I needed God to do that for me, to pursue me, amen? I needed God to pursue me, and you did too. And that's the porch. It simply says, come on up, have a seat. I want to talk to you. I want to be close to you. I'm pursuing you. I want you to be near to me, the porch. The second would be justification. And that's the doorframe of the home. That when we step through the doorframe by faith, we believe that Jesus forgives us of our sin. And that, and that when we step through the doorframe, justification can be sort of like God the Father is in heaven. And when he looks at you as, as a professed believer in Christ, he doesn't see your sin. It's essentially Jesus has stepped in front of you and so when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here. I don't trust on my own righteousness anymore. I trust in faith in Christ. So that it's, it's, it's what we would call an imputed or given righteousness. That it's simply by faith that that's happened. Now when we're forgiven by God, you can't really tell a difference. Like a forgiven person looks just like everybody else. But when we step through that door frame by faith and say, Lord, I receive this gift of forgiveness for myself. And when I do that, I enter into the home. And then at the time that one is forgiven, we, we, we would experience what's called the new birth or born again. And in that, as the name suggests, is a real change. This is the first step in sanctification and growing in holiness. The reason we all exist as Methodists. And then when you enter into the home, 
and you live life in the home, in the body of Christ, and you're cooking and you're, you're in the living room and you're, you're doing all these different things. You're being changed from the inside and you're, being, you're loving the things that God loves. You're loving the world and more and more the way that He loves it. You're, you're, you're growing in holiness. It's a gradual process, but it also can be an instantaneous process. And it's in that place that we learn more how to love God fully and love our neighbors like ourselves, or even better than ourselves. So in this doctrine of entire sanctification, he says this is the reason why we exist as Methodists. Now why do I tell you all that? It's because it begins, I believe, at the moment that a sinner realizes that trusting in your strengths is a weakness. But entrusting your weaknesses to God is a strength. Like I said, you're not far from the kingdom when, you, when, you're, when you're there. That's God's grace drawing you to himself and bringing you closer to himself. It may sound upside down, but just because it sounds upside down doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's how you would expect the kingdom of heaven to talk to the kingdom of earth. Kingdom of heaven's always right. It's always right. So you would expect the way God speaks to us to sound a little bit strange, but doesn't mean it's wrong. For example, go ahead. The world says, follow your heart. And Jesus says, follow me. The world says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. The world says, discover yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. You see the contrast? The world, be true to you. Jesus says, be true to me. When we talk about denial of sin and seeing all that we have gained as a loss, in the light of eternity, it makes sense that when the King of Heaven is spoken and we see the reality of, of who He is, everything that we think is so important in light of that, it just isn't. I mean, it's important to God. He loves our families and our children and our jobs. Don't get me wrong. but. It's only in those moments, though, that we can see the right ordering of our loves. So let us pray together. God, we thank you that when we lay our lives down, we find our lives. That when we give ourselves away, we find ourselves. And God, we, we hold in our hands all the affairs of our lives, all the things that you care about deeply. But you want us to say, you're saying to us, remember your first love. Remember the one who called you, who loves you, who invites you onto the porch. In light of who you are, Lord, everything just doesn't compare. All good things have come from you and everything's going to return to you. We were born into this world with nothing and we'll return to you in the same way God I pray that we hold what we have with an open hand that you want us to simply be people that are generous and I pray for anyone here today God who is well aware of their brokenness and their weaknesses I pray God that they would know that they are not far from the kingdom but in the power of your Holy Spirit, you're here among us moving. God, you don't stand ready to, to con condemn us 
or judge us. You stand with arms wide open to receive us to yourself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that who might ever believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. We have thought the truth.